Hello there, welcome to Blaze Explains, the third episode. Thank you for joining. Thank you, especially if you've already listened to the other podcasts, but certainly feel free to listen to those whenever. It always helps also to hear from you. Uh, if you want to reach out and let us know how we're doing, what we can do better, what you'd be interested in to hear us talk about, and so on. This week, going to discuss a little bit about social media. Now, social media is a topic that everybody has an opinion on, and given the nature of the topic, you could almost say everybody has a right to an opinion on it. Well, everybody does have a right to an opinion on everything, but an opinion on this is everyone has their own universe when it comes to social media. I'm preparing currently to write an opinion piece this week. It's not groundbreaking stuff. It's basically comes to a point about what I think social media really is supposed to be, at least for now, for our current time. I think the answer to that changes um, with the years. I think the mid to late 2000s, I think Facebook meant something very specific, and that was the epitome. I think Twitter, really, the early 2010s became that. Instagram had, well, kind of still has it, I think, and then it's and then Snapchat had its day, and it's all splitting amongst generations. But LinkedIn is, for me, the most interesting. And that is why we are going to start with that today. But just before I do that, I'll give you a little bit of a background on myself and my history with social media so you get a sense of what my views on it are. I am writing an opinion piece this week and that will focus mainly on the professional aspect of it. I went through a period where I would experiment with what, how I would use my social media to sort of reach a given goal. Facebook was one thing. I play with the language. You know, when you're a, a, a sort of guy in your late teens and early 20s, you try to, you know, ultimately, I think social media posts when you need to achieve something. It's all about extracting the maximum value for what you're trying to get. And so it, it's good to hone that. Um, and then when you need to deliver either a good personal update, you want to make sure that your friends in all corners of the world or the country or whatever your universe is, you want to make sure they hear it. You want to make sure they hear it as you would wish to tell it in person, but obviously through that medium, which is why I think it's important. And obviously that extends to brands, professionalism, and so on. It also just extends to the concept of dealing with the online world. Then I went through a period of, I build up Twitter followings and I'd effectively really push one side of, of my persona. You know, Twitter does not have a lot of room for ambiguity. Your profile has to be very clear who you are, what you stand for, and then you kind of stay in your lane. Otherwise, you just don't get the echo chamber that you need to get the reward system that Twitter favors. So I went through a period where I would, I said, I really focused on entrepreneurship. So I focused on sort of joke stuff through university, just kind of having fun with it. Outside, graduated, killed everything that I wrote, just purged it, started over again, focused on entrepreneurship and built up a following very, very quickly, even though really, when you think about it, what did I know about it then? But what do I know about it now? So I think you always have to just gamble and, and you go with what, what, what you feel like you, you can say. But I did successfully build it up and I think I got it up to 
uh, I, I got it up from about, I think, a few hundred up to over a thousand in a very short space of time. And then I sort of stopped myself and said, okay, well, the experiment worked. Now I'm pausing it. So I paused it and I just kind of stopped doing that really. And the next time was when I was a journalist in Southeast Asia. And so I really focused on delivering the news. Uh, I noticed though, as I did this around the 2014 election, I, I, I was being penned into a corner by the nature of the beast. And it was holding me to, to sort of really have one-dimensional views, which I didn't have on everything. And I, there's no room for nuance and debate. And, and, and that bothered me a lot. So I found myself engaging in what started out as sort of Twitter arguments into long conversations in, in direct messaging just to establish that, no, 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 I don't, I don't actually 100% disagree with everything you're saying, but I just feel that there's two sides to this and I have to come out strongly in favor of this, even though it means it's going to sound like I don't care about that. Uh, I'm sure everybody can sympathize with trying to strike that balance. Uh, and then you find some people don't have that problem and they just go for it anyway. But giving people updates was a tremendously rewarding experience. And then I had a colleague and I had a colleague who, very reputable, and had come from a top broadcaster and spent half his day on TweetDeck, on Twitter, managing his Twitter account, had many thousand followers and that was all he did. And that was kind of what he'd been trained to do. And that was, I guess, how he got his job and his foot in the door. And I couldn't fault him, but I had a lot more work to do because of that, because he wasn't doing it. And it's not that, you know, and, and I can't, again, I can't blame him. It's not like he was lazy. It's like to him, that was the job. And to me, that wasn't the job. And that really st stuck with me. I thought, no, no, that's not more important to me than what I have to do in the newsroom to get it done. And then that's kind of where I started to really just not engage with it in the way I used to. I said, okay, well, this is, you know, I can revive this at some point in the future, but I'm just not going to go with it. And then by that point, Instagram became a lot bigger. And, I, and Instagram is interesting and I've had a lot of fun with it. And, but it's become, again, it requires a sort of level of focus and commitment that I was not willing to give it based on my experiences with Twitter and with Facebook. Now, niche social media I love. SoundCloud, before it became massive, I loved going on that, sharing stuff, finding stuff, and maybe that's peripheral, but now I use Strava. I love Strava. I've got hardly any followers, but it's great because I do it because I love to look at that stuff, and I love to look at how far I've run and, and uh, to look at how far my friends have run and biked and, and done whatever, and I, I find it incredibly rewarding. Now we come on to LinkedIn as what I've started to focus on the past couple of months a lot more. And the concept of being authentically inauthentic. There's two types of self. And I will touch on this on my opinion piece. But just to remember, there is your authentic self. That's who you are. And then there's your inauthentic self that you portray to the outer world. And on most social media, that's quite a corrupt vision, I think. However, on LinkedIn, your inauthentic self, in fact, is your office self. And I would argue your office self and your home self are equally valid, are both equally authentic, because that's you in two very real environments that are crucial and integral to your daily life. So that's why we'll start with LinkedIn. So work and LinkedIn.
Just have a sip of my coffee here. LinkedIn is currently the world's largest professional network, 690 million plus users in over 200 countries. Well, they've expanded steadily and surely. I remember when people said there was a meme going around Facebook, use it for photos, Twitter, use it for your opinions, LinkedIn, use it for nothing. And that was true for a while for most people, but I, but they maintained their profile and they sort of didn't take it seriously. And then suddenly they had to. And that's kind of been the case because actually when the world did go social, when the world did go online, I mean, really online in the past few years, you need to have that representation. Otherwise, it's only the casual. It's founded in 2002. And first went live in May 2003. It's older than YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Interesting. It's just been around. The idea's been there. But of course, growth was very slow at first. The first month, LinkedIn only had 4,500 members. In a bad day, only 20 people signed up. In 2007, it became profitable. Now, I haven't got the year here, but when LinkedIn was acquired, people were questioning, is it really worth that much? But this was already happening. It is worth it because that is where people are. This is why LinkedIn is, is so interesting. People, it's renewed focus on it in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic because that is where they're going to find you online. They have to find you there. No more escape. Over the last decade, people's interest in LinkedIn has more than doubled. Well, there you go. It's been around for a long time. Over the last decade, people's interest in LinkedIn more than doubled. Well, there you go. Over the last decade, I think LinkedIn went from most people didn't have a profile picture. They just they just created the account so that they'd create the account and they'd kind of add people and they'd still be a little bit like Facebook with which connection that they'd that you'd accept, they'd sort of act as if they didn't, you know, they could judge whether or not you were their friend. But but that's not what LinkedIn is. LinkedIn is, this is a professional network. And I think it's a testament to people who's going to put business first. That's a big test. And it's an important one. And that's why you can really tell who's taking it seriously. Based on 2019 data, around 20 million jobs are posted on LinkedIn with 100 million applications submitted. This data most likely changed over the course of 2019-20 since there are so many layoffs and fewer jobs posted. Well, yeah, interrupted. But here's the thing. In 2019, I posted one ad on LinkedIn for my to get to find my original staffers of the people that I interviewed as a result of the recruiter. And this is where they're incredibly valuable and why it doesn't surprise me that they that they are becoming to the fore so greatly. I found, over the course of the interviews, about 40 viable candidates who I had interviewed who I liked. From them, I winnowed it down. Whenever I needed to go back and hire someone new, I just went back into the book. And I found someone, I pulled them up, I called them, and I got them to join me. It is incredibly easy. And people who are looking for jobs, it's very easy to apply for them on LinkedIn because they're tailored to you and your network. Generation Z, this is a quote I'm giving here. Generation Z is stepping into their first jobs while baby boomers are putting off retirement. Not only are millennials the largest group in today's workforce, they're also the fastest growing segment on LinkedIn by three times and are two times more likely to change jobs than any other generation. Well, first of all, yeah, because they're going to get laid off a lot. That's just kind of the way it goes. We live in a startup culture. People join, people leave. 
It's been volatile economic times for the past 15 years. There's no sign that that's going to go away. Uh, we're going to have to be flexible. Employers are. But then again, values. If people feel they're not having their values rewarded in their job, and this is where millennials get a bad rap, but it is important, they are going to leave. And they leave a lot. Oh, it's not stimulating. Oh, it's not this. I just couldn't find the drive. And I go, well, I looked into it and it was also heartless. Oh, yeah, it is heartless because cold, hard arithmetic, that's one. But also businesses, when you build down to it, you know, they, they have to deal with very harsh realities. And if you get exposed to that and you sort of thought it would be this I think there's a, there's a fear that when you when you go into work that it's going to be unstimulating. Oh no, that it's going to be stimulating and inspirational. And the reality is there are problems, there are ugly sides of everything, every job in the world, every industry in the world, no matter how how inspirational. And the ones that are surface inspirational often have the most corrupt internal issues. And I'm not I'm not knocking people who work in them. I'm just saying. It, it, you 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 go in the inside and you may find yourself being incredibly cynical at at the way things are when you actually go inside and then an, an industry that you would think you know would be awful will will be you'll go to a company and it'll be filled by people of the highest moral character wonderful people who work incredibly hard and and have a a, a great ethos you know you cannot judge from the outside and i think what a good example of this is God, work pays me. A, there's a budget to order food and to play ping pong. Yeah, because they never want you to leave the office. The expectation is that you're there. Like uh, people who are still working in some finance jobs, it's like, yeah, well, we, we can order in Deliveroo, Uber Eats whenever we want on the budget. Yeah, because they're keeping you working. The longer you're there, the more you're making money for the company. And that is the most important thing. Millennial priorities, values, 52%. Skills, 50%. Yeah, very important. Flexibility, 41%. Paychecks, 34%. This is from the LinkedIn blog. They want, they know what they want. And it's not as clear cut as I want a bigger paycheck. They want that reward system, which is why companies are so forefront about, are you bringing change into the world? Is it good change? Are you rewarding people? Are you providing an environment where they can learn? Where do you find that out? LinkedIn. Users use LinkedIn on average of only 17 minutes per day. Do you know why? I haven't even read the study. I know why. It's because if you're on LinkedIn, you feel like you're at the office. Again, office self at home self. It's like, I must congratulate this person. Oh God, they're doing so well. But fair enough, they are doing well. And I want to make sure that I'm mates with them. So I'm going to like, I'm going to like their posts and I'm going to, support them. And I go, you know what? I am happy for him. I, I, I'm, ha I'm happy for her. And I'm going to send her a message and I'm going to let them know that there's at least one person here who kind of has your back because people don't engage in quite the same way on LinkedIn. They just sort of watch. And then they can only do it for, for a bit because it's so important. Suddenly, you don't go there for, for a break from the real world. The real world, and this is what I think is, the real world is becoming LinkedIn. 70% of the global workforce is passive talent, but 80%, 87% of both passive and active global workforce are open to new opportunities. Basically, people keep moving. Now, why do they move? How do you get people? Once again, LinkedIn business. Employee referrals are the top source of quality hires.
someone who can say definitively that you're the man or the woman for the job, nothing is better than that. But then we move into a next key concept. Before we go to the other big social media, we've got to talk about professionalism. Professionalism on LinkedIn. Well, it's, it, it, it's where it goes to live. You have to behave yourself within the confines as you would expect at an office and how you'd wish to present yourself and how you wish yourself to be seen. There are many examples of other social media when you step outside the bounds of what it would be acceptable behavior coming back and biting you in the arse in the real world, outside of social media. Oxford Dictionary. The competence or skill expected of a professional. Professionalism. The U.S. Department of Labor. Professionalism means conducting oneself with responsibility, integrity, accountability, and excellence. It also means, just turning the page here, communicating effectively and appropriately and always finding ways to be productive. There you go. Where can you do that on social media? You're either not being true to yourself on the others or you're on LinkedIn. The Philosophy of Professional Ethics by Timo Airaxinen of the University of Helsinki. Three points important here. A professional ethics in a field of applied ethics whose purpose is to define, clarify and criticize professional work and its certain values. B. Three types of professional ethics. First as a code of values and norms as a guide for practical decisions. Second is as a fully idealized set of values. Last as a critical philosophical discipline. And from Pinkoff, quandary ethics, ethical dilemma, the example, defender of a criminal. Ultimate professionalism. It is abhorrent to condone, accept, and support the crimes of, let's say, a horrific individual, a serial killer, a rapist, a genocidal maniac, a war criminal, an arsonist. But they must be defended. And they must be defended with impeccable professionalism. Because, and this is why professionalism is so important, and I'll, I'll, I'll make my point as it relates to social media off the back of this, is without it, the institution there collapses. And this is why it's so interesting, because the judicial system is one of the pillars of society. So it must be upheld. So that's why the serial killer must be defended. The rapist must, be, must have a proper legal defense in order for us to feel that justi justice can exist. And therefore, we, can, we are right in putting our trust in our institutions. Our institutions. Well, what are our institutions on social media? They are Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. But LinkedIn is the realm of professionalism. The others, there's professionalism within there. But, you know, if they're a brand, yes, you do. You behave within the confines of acceptable behavior for a brand so you don't get into trouble. But you do not communicate your professionalism as effectively as you do on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is the arbiter of professionalism in the institution of social media. And that's a very interesting point. Because that's why people only want to spend 70 minutes a day on it. Because, you know, that's the thing holding them up. That's the thing holding the microscope. 
That's also the reason that I've turned to focus on that in the past month or so, to really just almost ignore my much larger followings elsewhere and my much larger engagement rates to focus on LinkedIn because I, I want them to see that I'm engaging in the institution that, ho- that holds up social media. We are moving away from LinkedIn. But before we do, from Aristotle's virtue theory, and philosophy I think is a really important thing to bear in mind here, traits that characterize professionalism include integrity, competence, care, compassion, trustworthiness, conscientiousness, and impartiality. LinkedIn is who we want to be and who we aspire to be and who we want the world to see when they evaluate us in our office self. Data from 2016, 28% of employers have fired staff due to using the internet for non-work-related activity during working hours. 18% have fired people due to their posts. Well, there you go. It's unimaginable. Well, it's always unimaginable, but it's far less imaginable to have someone go on a, let's say, a racist rant on LinkedIn as opposed to Facebook. But the barometer is the same. Maybe it isn't just LinkedIn. LinkedIn is just the one that we can control. But we're being held to the professional standard elsewhere too. That's the difficulty and that's the contradiction within social media is, well, where is the, is the professional and where is the personal? Well, it's the title of our next segment, so it's there too. But where the line is requires constant thought, constant analysis, and constant consideration of what your actions are, how they will be interpreted online, how they will be interpreted in 10 years, and are you still okay with saying it? What's interesting is you wouldn't think about that on a Snapchat post. You wouldn't think about that on an Instagram post. You would on a LinkedIn post. You would because it's already in the professional realm. 2017 data from the Career Builder survey showed 70% of HR managers and HR professionals use some type of screening for candidates' online behavior. Yeah, 60% in 2016 and 11% in 2006. So it jumped up. Well, look, I, I'm sorry, I was applying to universities and, and, and they were telling you very, very clearly, do not post anything stupid on your on your profile because they are going to check. And if you have something stupid, you're not getting in. Again, a massive moral quandary here. Well, what is the personal? That, that was LinkedIn, that was Facebook. What is the personal here? What is the professional? Deal breakers for HR include discriminatory comments about race, gender, and religion, derogatory statements about former co-workers and their previous employer. How many times have you heard someone complain about their work on their on their social media? How has no one ever told you, don't talk about work on social media ever, unless it's LinkedIn and it's positive. Never, ever do that. People still do it. Unbelievable. Because what choice does work have at that point? I mean, we might be in a moral quandary. Yes, maybe it's private, but you've just said that publicly, in writing. Publicly in writing, in the internet, forever. I'll finish the quote. And evidence that they supplied inaccurate information about their qualifications in their resume or application materials. Yeah, they do check if you go, you know. Sorry about that. Yeah, they do check if you actually went to the places and got the qualifications that you say you did. The same data also shows 57% of HR professionals won't hire someone who is invisible in the online world. Why is that? 
it's because I can't verify that you are who you say you are. I am suspicious of people. I'm always suspicious of people who I cannot find online. Do you know why? I feel like they've got a criminal record and they're trying to hide it. Why? Because I've come across people who had a criminal record and were trying to hide it. And who did that by obscuring their online presence. Now, if someone's of a different generation, then okay, fair enough, I understand. And I'm, you just don't, you're not comfortable with it. You're not grown up in the world. But others, I'm mean, like, oh, I'm immediately suspicious. Why? Also, I mean, when you look at the advantage of, you know, for myself, once I started to build up my career, I could just say to someone, yeah, Google, I mean, I wouldn't say it, but yeah, Google me. And then you'll see that you can immediately verify that I did everything I say I did. And then I, we no longer have such questions. And section five, the main difference between professional and personal social media. Professional social media serves as a multimedia resume. It serves as the platform to build the thoughts on leadership and networks. Personal, a way to engage with family, friends and acquaintances. Here's the difference. Nowhere there is it okay to go on a racist rant. And nowhere there is it okay to complain about your employer and about your staff who you collaborate with and the employer who is paying you so that you can pay your bills. Facebook was there so you could engage with people, network, uh, get in touch with friends, get in touch with acquaintances, long lost ones too, and keep family updated on what you're doing. The wonderful thing about Facebook was that I didn't ever need to worry so much about getting people's numbers because I could always go find them. And how wonderful was that? Now, there's a few strategies to how you manage your social media. This is from the Harvard Business Review. Sorry if you hear something in the background. It is lockdown. My toddler is throwing a tantrum. But I think she's trying to get in. Anyway, <clears throat> strategy for managing social media from HBS. Open strategy. Be fully exposed and don't separate personal and professional use of social media. I've tried that. It's actually interesting. I mean, you obviously have to limit what you say, and it can be quite useful. I mean, now I'm just focusing on the professional, and I'm sort of slightly blending my honest updates, which are, you know, I don't really have a lot to hide at the moment, you know. I am who I say I am. I am a husband. I am a father. And I've been a father and a husband long enough for that to be my life. And no great secrets there. I don't go out and get drunk and take silly pictures. Even when I used to, you know, go out and hang out with friends, I, I generally would avoid the pictures. The sort of worst ones you'd ever really get of me would be at a rugby social. And then rugby social pictures always look worse because you generally are sweaty and kind of look you look a lot worse for wear than you actually are because you've just spent 80 minutes effectively at war. And then you have this silly grin on your face because you emerged victorious or even not victorious, you emerged happy, satisfied with the day. So, so they, never look, they never look good if you want to evaluate them just in that context. But it can be powerful to combine them. It can be powerful. Kim Kardashian, one example. Kanye West, another. Audience strategy. When one strategically chooses the friends or followers in each social media. Well, there you go. My Strava one, my mates who run. That Twitter experiment I ran, entrepreneurship. Who followed then? Who followed when I discuss Indonesian politics? Who followed when I discovered UK politics? Spoiler alert, no one. But I also didn't take it that seriously. Just dipping my toe in, in very divided waters that I don't quite agree with the divisions. I just agree with us moving forward. Content strategy. Filter whatever content to be posted in which social media. Hmm. 
filter whatever content to be posted on which social media. Watch. Watch where you post it. That's a strange one. Custom strategy. Filter both the content and the audience of, on all, so, of all social media. Okay. <clears throat> if you're building followings, you want to handle it like that. I think what you have to do is that you have to manage how you engage with each social media. I think you have to consider what your audience is going to be there, what the audience is going to be, and also what your audience is going to be there. And then you tailor it. Or you tailor what you put out there, the content you put out there, in order to define your audience. Social media for business. Here's the story of Tom Dixon, the founder and CEO of Blendtec. At first, he didn't know what YouTube is. Now, he is a YouTube sensation with 9 million views. In his videos, he uses his company's blender to crush hard objects, ranging from marbles to iPhones. Another example from the Harvard Business Review. Perfect example as well. If you ever want to get really interested in YouTube, you can go into finding, for example, a channel which tests out humane traps for catching rats. And I can't remember, and I don't know how I ended up watching it, but I found it incredibly interesting and satisfying to watch the best trap, which was uh, effectively a magnetized um, plank, walking the plank, and then the rats would fall in and no water in the bottom, don't worry. They simply were collected the next day and freed outside of the barn. But it was amazing to actually see Something as whimsical as that rack up the millions of views it does. Now, for our next section, we're going to turn, turn slightly to the dark side of social media. And I'm just going to use as an example the Love Island suicides. Love Island is a reality TV show in several countries, but I'm just talking about the UK here, which... Contestants go into a house and they attempt to match up and then eventually people are voted out by the public and eventually people, you know, people couple up and then, you know, some of them separate and they go couple up with other people and then eventually there's a winning couple and they generally are sort of darlings of the nation. It's an incredibly popular show and... Others sort of slightly more villains, but I'd actually say that in general, people have a very warm outlook towards these people. But several things happened. Sophie Graydon was on it, killed herself. A contestant killed herself. Mike Thalassitis, another contestant and a footballer, killed himself. And then finally, in February, just before lockdown, Caroline Flack, the host of the show killed herself. Now, there were obviously issues going on with all of these. The media was hounding them, but they were being trashed online. And really, social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, had created these vicious storms of hate that just charged at these individuals. Even when they hadn't really done anything wrong at all. And this happens a lot. And I think when you're talking about people exposing their sort of the side of them that is sensitive and vulnerable on a, on a national reality show, it destroys them 
sometimes to have that part of them so exposed. After three suicides, ITV finally released a duty care update, which includes a minimum of eight therapy sessions for each Islander once they return home and proactive contacts from the team for 14 months afterwards. Prior to her death, Sophie Graydon opened up about cyberbullying she had received after the show. Her last words to her friend include struggling with the world. She also opened up about having anxiety and depression in her social media just months before her death. Since 2004, more than 21 TV reality show starts in the UK had died of suicide. I had no idea the number was that big. Now, I think there's an argument here that maybe people who are more volatile are, are, are getting on these shows because they're more interesting to watch and they impress with producers more. Well, that's just speculation. I'm just throwing it in today. This is all to illustrate what can happen when people cannot escape. And that's why social media comes into it. But here's a quote from Gail Salt, a psychiatrist speaking to Refinery29. Being on a reality TV show is no doubt a huge stressor with the potential for humiliation and shame. These shows aren't banking on viewers tuning in to see contestants having a jolly time. It often involves drama or something terrible, humiliating or shameful. As a mental health professional, I can't say I'm a fan. People love reality shows because there's a preserved deliciousness akin to gossiping, which makes us love seeing the drama. Susan Bialy Haas to Refinery29 too. It's true. The doctor says vulnerabilities are played upon and manipulation from producers is used to create good TV. And sadly, there definitely seems to be quite an appetite for that. Not so different than the Colosseum in Roman times. Social media means you're never alone. And that's never, ever truer than when you're talking about cyberbullying, when people who are sensitive can't go home and, and escape it. So let's look at this then. 73% of students have been bullied in their life. 44% said it happened in the past 30 days. 36.5% of people have been cyberbullied in their lifetime. 17.4% said it happened in the last 30 days. The number doubled from 2007 data and increased from 2018 to 19 data. Instagram, 42%. Facebook, 37%. Snapchat, 31% are the three platforms where cyberbullying happens the most. Just so we're clear, cyberbullying is not like, it's not like, oh, you're fat. It is really targeted viciousness. It's kill yourself. Why haven't you killed yourself? No, day after day after day from the most appalling people who have this sense that they're in a vacuum and they will just target the most vulnerable and they won't stop. They'll just keep going. And if it's a kid who's going to school the next day, they'll get it at school. Then they'll get it at home. They'll get it every time they open their phone over and over and over again. 69% of people admitted they had done something abusing towards people online. And only 15% admitted they have cyberbullied someone online. Well, I mean, I, I admit that when I was, and I didn't cyberbully, but when I was at school, I was at times bullied. And I've also done and said things that I regretted. To people, and I thought, yeah, that that seemed like bullying. Actually, I'm I'm not proud of that. I think doing things that you're sort of not proud of, and you know, you don't want to admit to it. It's desperately embarrassing. And if you're truly nice to a person who's done a lot of awful stuff, you really don't want to admit to it because you can't afford to open that door. You can't afford to have people come looking because it is all there. They will find it. The OECD Talis reported that England saw 29% of bullying reports compared to the average of the EU. 
which is 14%. Oh, maybe it's worse here. I think people's attitude towards social media can be very bad in the UK. I think it can be very bad in every country. I think where it's been most hugely adopted, the UK, the US, is it's going to be where you see the worst numbers. I also think where you problems in society will play themselves out online in extremis. And I think that will continue to happen. Now, we all understand the importance and the role that Facebook and Instagram and so on have played. And that's a great discussion to have. And I think it's an important discussion to have. Sorry. We all understand the role that Facebook and Instagram have played in their time. And we've all understood the importance they have and the importance they continue to have. Now, for the format of this podcast, I really wanted to just focus on professionalism, personal elements of social media, and what I thought was the most important element of that to bear in mind, which is really embodied by LinkedIn. Why is that important? It is almost inconceivable that you could do this on LinkedIn, because it's not supposed to be personal. There is no circumstance where you could possibly envisage doing that to other people on LinkedIn. Not on mass, not in the way it's done on, on all the other social media. I will have discussions with people, I'm sure, in the future where we can riff on, on, the, on the, the bigger names like Facebook and Instagram. But if you're wondering why I haven't mentioned it today, it's because if I'm speaking on my own, I'm, I'm sure quite a lot has already been said. So I'm just going to say this. How do you solve these ills? How do you solve the echo chamber of fake news? How do you solve cyberbullying? How do you find a way around racist rants? Well, how about this? How about the most important social media is the one in which you must behave like a professional? And no, I don't have shares in LinkedIn. But I think there is an example of where we are going to head in order to institute a natural form of social control into our actual daily contact in life. Because it is also very, 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 very clear at this point that Facebook and Instagram and Twitter are utterly incapable of actually policing people to the, in, in that way. They're not going to be able to stop it. And I'm not finding fault with them per se. I'm just saying it's clearly not working. And unless they totally compromise the values of freedom of expression and freedom of speech, they're in a very difficult situation. How are you going to fix that? Now, there's a whole other topic there. And again, I've stayed away from it about ethics in Silicon Valley, ethics in the world as we know it. But we will touch on that next week or the next podcast, and in others, I'm sure, going forward. But for now, that is me done. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really, really look forward to hearing your feedback. Find me anywhere you want. Once again, from my guest bedroom, I am preparing to move soon and hopefully we'll have a little bit more space. 
but I just want to say thank you for listening and thank you for tolerating my voice. Bye-bye now. See you next time.